Hello and welcome to Technotopia. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show we have Charles Hoskinson, the founder of Cardano. This is Technotopia. Technotopia is also sponsored by CheapTranscription.io. Cheap Transcription offers 10 cent per minute transcriptions using our happy robots or 85 cents per minute using our human assistants. CheapTranscription.io is cheaper and faster than everyone else. CheapTranscription.io. So welcome. So Charles, welcome to the show. This is a this is a odd place for me to do it. I usually don't do it. I usually do it away from human beings uh, in my attic. So this is nice that we're live. It's pretty fun. Um, why don't you tell us about uh, input output? We're at the we're at your big event here. Rudy Rucker's here, and all a bunch of uh, uh, amazing thinkers. So why don't you tell us what you guys are doing? So the IOHK Summit is an annual event. Uh, it's usually a private event, and it's strictly just for our companies. The the challenge when you run a distributed company is that you have people all over the world and there's kind of a double-edged sword. So on one hand, you get to hire people from all over the world and really get a lot of different languages, cultures, and experiences. But on the other hand, people tend to get a bit isolated and siloed. Uh, you know, they tend to just stay in their home and away from the sun and mm-hmm. so forth, and they become more that's my preferred. That's my preferred position. Yeah, yeah mine too. I studied <laughs> mathematics. It's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's fun. But every now and then, you got to break people out of their shells and you know, bring them all together and have them talk to each other and say, hey, by the way, you actually belong to a company that's larger than one person. You mm-hmm. know, it's, a, it's a big thing. Uh, so the general public keeps asking us, all of our fans, we have about a half million people in the Cardano community, and uh, they say, hey, you know, if you open up this event, we'd come. We'd love, to, we'd love to interact with the team and actually get to meet the team and know the team. So we said, well, that sounds like a lot of fun, but we've never actually done a conference before. So this is totally new to us, and we'll probably fail miserably. But uh, it looks like uh, the turnout's going to be good. I think we'll have around 700 people here. But you have, you have coffee and you have lunch? We have coffee and lunch, yeah. All right, so you're good. That's all you really need exactly, for a conference. Exactly, exactly, exactly. My first Bitcoin event I signed up for was in 2011, and two people registered, myself and another guy. And <laughs> the other guy didn't show up, so, okay. so I had a conversation with myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, but did you have lunch? Uh, yeah, it was actually at a diner. So. Okay, so you just did it yourself. Yeah. All right, that's good. That's actually an interesting point. Let's talk a little bit about that. The the basis for a lot of these big projects, especially in cryptocurrency, is sort of like a fan base. So you said you had 500,000 folks. Mm-hmm. How do we build those uh, groups that aren't adversarial, that aren't angry at each other, that are that are working together for common co- uh, common goal? Well, the problem in our space is that it kind of combines two collections of, of social dynamics which can be very toxic uh, and very sectarian. So one is this uh, concept of I've invested in something and so I, I have a financial incentive for my side to win and your side to lose. Uh, and that's, that's always going to bring out a, quite a bit of emotion. The other is that there's a lot of politics and philosophy that's deeply embedded into the design of these systems. Everything from how much privacy you have uh, to things like who's in control to the consensus algorithm. And it, it, what happens is that they go beyond just a factual conversation and more to the realm of opinion and more to the realm of feels right. So for example, proof of work adherence. Uh, no matter how much research we do with proof of stake, how many papers we publish, uh, how many scientists we hire, how many uh, peer review venues we go to and check marks we get, uh, they'll just always be convinced proof of stake doesn't work. Uh, and you say, well, why? And they'll list a lot, a lot of attacks, like nothing at stake and long range. And you can go 60-page papers explaining why those attacks don't apply for your particular protocol, but at the end of the day, they're just philosophically opposed to mm-hmm. proof of stake. And so you're not really going to bridge that gap. So 
there's always going to be some some factionalism inside the space. It's like saying, can we ever converge to one language or one religion? It probably won't happen. That's it. Can we just get along? And, and instead of uh, it being like a brutal political or, or economic rivalry, can it be more like a sports rivalry of uh -huh. one, you know, one team versus another? But we're all kind of fans of the entire industry. And I think we're gradually moving in that direction as the ecosystem matures. You know, the other thing is that that sectarianism only applies to a radical minority of the users of the system. At the end of the day, not a lot of people feel super passionate about Windows or super passionate uh -huh. about Facebook or Google or other. There's just services and platforms to them. And while there are some people you know, who really love these things, they start blogs about them, they, you know, they, they get really passionate, that's like one for every thousand or one for every 10,000. So for technology to be great, it has to be useful. And uh, our industry has yet to get there, but there are great healthy signs that we're moving in that direction. Uh -huh. Do you have any tips for, for dealing with trolls like that? I mean, I think it seems like almost every project uh, coming going from uh, politics to religion to technology has this vocal minority. How do you deal with that in this context? And maybe there's some way to extrapolate that out into real world uh, experiences. Right. Well. The problem is that people live with information asymmetries, you know, and uh, we, we just are really bad at recognizing that as human beings. Uh, you know, my dad's a doctor and he deals with hundreds of patients every week. And they all come in and they have their own life experiences and their own frustrations. And if they yell at you or they say something or they're, they're kind of grouchy, well, you have to put yourself in them, their shoes. They're, they're sick, they're not feeling well, they, they may have just had a death in the family. There's a lot of circumstances there, so you can't take the things they say and do really that personally. And much applies that way when you're talking about the cryptocurrency space. I mean, we've gone through a pretty major bubble bursting, uh, and some people have lost 95% of their net value, and they're very frustrated. Some people don't have the technical skills necessary to use these products, and they're trying to use them, and they're deeply frustrated in that nothing works the way that they'd expect it to. Uh, so, you know, it can be a user experience issue. It could be a, a large-scale loss. Uh, you know, also the other thing is that these ten types of technology tend to attract certain groups of people, people who may be a bit more cynical or more worried about their privacy or, or a bit more politically radical. Uh, so, you know, if you walk in saying, oh, everybody's going to be like my next door neighbor, or the guy I drink with, mm -hmm. or everybody's going to be like a normal person, uh, probably not at this stage. And it's an unrealistic expectation. So you have to take it slow. You have to have a bit of empathy. And uh, you have to try to understand where the other party's life experiences are taking them. And more often than not, you can bridge the gap. Uh, now, every now and then, you just have professional trolls. The problem with the day and age we live in is that trolling is a business. There's actually people from Eastern Europe reached out to me who they used to do fake news as a service during the political campaigns. Uh -huh. And they say, well, on the off season, we'll, uh, we'll go trash <laughs> your competitors for $10,000 a month. And they'll create bot accounts and all these other things. And it's just really amazing the level of sophistication. So a lot of criticism is actually not even real. It's astroturfed. It's from uh -huh. fake people, uh, you know, fake accounts, or you know, one person curating several thousand Twitter accounts or Reddit accounts. And basically loading it up with a script and, uh, and they, they go and say and do certain things and try to emulate real people. So, you know, you, you can get angry at a machine, but that's kind of like getting angry at your vacuum cleaner because it didn't yep. clean your carpet right. I mean, like, you, you, you're, it's, you're the problem, not the vacuum well, you, cleaner. Well, you still personify. You're still going to personify your Roomba. Right. If it didn't hit the corner correctly, you're going to say, oh, this stupid machine didn't do it correctly. That right. damn Roomba loves sucking up <laughs> Christmas decorations. <laughs> Or Lego, or Lego. We have a lot of Lego around the oh, house. Oh, man, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, no, it's a mess. Um, 
That's interesting. How can how can we solve that that uh, bot problem um, with technology you're working on, or with technology that you've seen? Well, so the question is first: Do you have a civil resistant uh, medium? So, uh, for all the users in your system, do you have the capacity of guaranteeing that those users are human? And uh, that can be everything from uh, a KYC ML process, where you know you you kind of study the people closely, you look at their passports and you know these other identity documents, and then you know that everybody's permissioned that enter the system. That's a very heavy system. It can be that they have to stake some sort of resource, uh, so like they use a proof-of-work algorithm, do a lot of mining, uh, or they set aside some money and bond it or something like that. Then you know the cost of trolling is significantly more expensive because every identity you want to create is, is uh -huh. very, very heavy. Uh, it could be a communal attestation. So you know, this is a very old concept, like Web of Trust from the early 90s yep. when PGP first came out. So there's a lot of mechanisms that exist, but um, generally speaking, it's contextual to the medium. The problem is that the platforms that people tend to utilize the most for trolling, like uh, Twitter and Reddit and these things, are open systems. And their money they make from advertisers is connected to the amount of users they have. Mm -hmm. So they don't really have an incentive to prune the social graph. and massively reduce their user count because it turns out that a lot of those users aren't real. <laughs> they have an incentive to try to make the user graph look as large as possible and as dynamic as possible. Uh, so there, there's kind of a conflict of interest that's, that's economic in nature for these, these types of systems. But other types of systems like cryptocurrencies, they actually have much stronger civil resistance uh, about them and you have better tools to deal with and accommodate civil resistance. So. It actually makes me quite confident that as we move to the 21st century, uh, these problems will be resolved one way or another, either by layering both of these things together, like Minds is a, is a kind of a cryptocurrency social network, yep. and they have a million and a half people. The, the CEO of Minds is actually here presenting at the summit, Bill, and uh, you know, they have some good ideas of being able to kind of uh, take it to the 21st century. But there's always going to be assholes. You, know, uh -huh. you can't really get rid of them. You're going to deal with them, and they're persistent. There's always going to be cynics and skeptics. You know, and, Steve Jobs came back to Apple in 1997. Yeah, you might remember how many negative articles were written. They said, oh, now the company is going to go out of business in six months. Yep. Steve is an asshole and no one can work with him. And that was true for like 1980s Steve Jobs. But, you know, <laughs> 1990 Steve Jobs was a much better model, right? Yeah, yeah he, was, no, he was no, doing a lot of meditation at that point. Yeah, probably. exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the Pixar guys kind of taught him how to be chills. Yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting point. So I, I come at this from a media standpoint where I believe the curator is the, is the end-all, be-all for for media creation, but then the idea that there can be an open network of media creation that's, that can be controlled specifically by crypto or could be controlled by a web of trust of some sort, then mm -hmm. that, that might be interesting. I mean, that's one of the problems with something like a Minds versus a New York Times. Minds requires all sorts of heavy lifting on the part of the user in order to understand what's going on, right. whereas New York Times, you open up the paper and it's just there. And yeah. all, the, all the difficulties in the back end. But I, I don't think these things are necessarily mutually exclusive because once you have infrastructure, then you can build agencies on top of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So it's entirely possible to take the New York Times model and then re-implement that model within an open system like Minds. And then all of a sudden you have the best of both worlds. So you have a trusted brand and reputation, which has got a great user experience behind it. You just kind of open it up and see it. But on the other hand, you know that the, the readers, the comment section, all of these things that are interfacing with it, and where the advertisements are going to, those are actually real authenticated people. Uh -huh. And uh, those people have a payment system as well, so they can tip the journalist directly. And you can even explore different ad models. Um, this has been tried, actually, by Steam and other yeah. platforms, and to various degrees of success. There's a, and also there's another platform called BATS, uh -huh. Basic Attention Token. Yep. 
Uh, so it's, uh, it's fascinating to see where we can kind of take this stuff, but we're right now in the, uh, the toddler stage. Sure, sure. Everybody's just shitting everywhere, knocking stuff over, <laughs> trying to figure it out. You know? and yeah, and then, so so that's a, that's, that leads us to the next question. Where does all this look, what does all this look like in, uh, in 10 years, 20 years? Yeah, you know, it, it, there, there really does need to be a financial renaissance. Uh, and uh, frankly, a lot of things just aren't working well. And we've reached a scale where, you know, the hidden problems have become blatantly obvious. So no one's really happy with the way money, credit, insurance, uh, no one's really happy with the way social media is currently working, or frankly, journalism in general. Uh, and that's just because these systems were built in a very hierarchical way, and they were built for closed economies and closed flows. You know, when I was a kid, if I wanted to learn something, I'd get on my bicycle and ride it to the library and go check out a book. And I lived in Hawaii when I was a little kid and it rained a lot. So uh -huh. it was a big effort, man. You know, riding your bike in the rain and the mud and you try not to get your books wet. Now you can just download anything from, uh, you know, a click of a button. And the, the, the library is, is like infinite in size. Uh -huh. It's pretty crazy. So when you live in a society like today's, yet all your institutions were built with a society like the one that had the library, then all of a sudden uh, the institutions just really aren't going to be able to hold it. So I, I think we're in a time of great change and transformation, and you see a lot of symptoms of that, like Brexit and uh, Donald Trump's election and these things where people are just really frustrated. and No one's listening to each other, and, and people are kind of getting siloed. So technology like cryptocurrencies and blockchain is, is super appealing because what it really does is it allows you to take a step back and say, how should society actually run? How should economic transactions happen between people? What level of privacy should you have? What level of control should you have over your money and your assets? Uh, and these types of foundational things, which have all kind of been pre-decided for us by people who came before us, now we're in a position where not only are we in control of them, we can actually experiment with totally new systems that we've never seen before. And instead of having these systems be on a scale of a community, these systems are on a scale of everyone in the world and simultaneously. So uh, that's bound to cause a little bit of chaos and it's bound to cause a little bit of disruption. But on the other hand, it's, it's bound to get us to a point where I think the world will ultimately get a lot more fair for people. And it might create some interesting winners and losers, like for example, the United States and the European Union might not have as much power in that kind of mm -hmm. world. Whereas African nations and Southeast Asian nations, which have historically really not had a lot of power, may end up actually becoming the big winners here because they have a much better population dynamic. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, for our part at our company, you know, we, we try to imagine the future. So we, we do that through a lot of academic research and, you know, we do that through a lot of educated guesses and really good business intelligence. But you know, at the end of the day, our guess is as good as your guess, and uh, we're all just trying to figure this out. So we focus mostly on capabilities, neutral tool sets, and then we say, you know, where will these things go in the next five, ten years? We don't really know. That's what I think is interesting about your company. It's like you've you created a you created a popular, a genuinely popular movement uh, with sort of one group of people, but you've also peppered it with uh, academics on the inside, which I don't think. I've seen since, I mean, we probably haven't seen it since DARPA, I guess. I mean, you're in a, you're in a situation where, where these academics are all thinking together uh, in, a, in a private way, and they're all getting exactly what they want, which is private, which is time and the ability to, uh, to write papers. Right. Is that the model for the future? Is, this, is, is yours the, would you recommend this for almost anybody who's working in, in blockchain? 
Well, it depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to solve a customer experience, and you know, then you really should not be thinking too much about academic research. You're thinking about UX, UI, and you're thinking about customer acquisition, all the kinds of things that uh, a normal startup thinks about. But you know, IOHK is an infrastructure builder. And so if we're going to go around and assert that we have a better money system or a better property system or better voting system than what's come before us, that's an enormous claim. You know, it's, and it's not the go trust Charles type of, you know, like, who am I? I'm just some dude. You know, so if you're going to write it, that down and say that you've done that, then you really need to take it shopping. You need to take it shopping amongst the best and brightest people you can find who don't have a financial incentive to agree with you. You know, people who couldn't care less about you in many cases actually are on the opposite side of the spectrum where they have a, a professional benefit from finding flaws in your papers. Anytime someone comes up with anything, in cryptography in particular, if you find a flaw in it, you can get also a publication for that. Because there's just as many people writing papers about other people's bad papers <laughs> as there are people writing papers about new and interesting things. So that's a very good environment to, uh, to test your ideas because they're either going to get tested there or they're going to be tested by hackers and, and, uh, and, and basically people trying to game the system con men uh, once you've deployed it. So the question is, who bears that cost? Do we bear that cost as a company? Or does the customer bear that cost? And unfortunately, right now, the infrastructure builders in our industry seem to think it's perfectly okay to push that cost to grandma and mm -hmm. perfectly okay to push that cost to the user. And I, I think that's not only immoral, it's also a huge barrier to adoption. Because, you know, if somebody loses, it's one thing to say, oh, I had a bug and my LinkedIn app doesn't work on my phone. Like, okay, maybe LinkedIn loses the user for a while, but it's probably not too hard to get them back. If somebody uses your system and loses their life savings as a consequence of crummy software, not only will you never get them back, you've just created an evangelist to regulate and burn crypto to the ground yep. for the rest of their lives. And they're, they're one of the many horror stories. So we as an industry need to slow down a little bit and say things need to be done in a very methodical way, especially on the infrastructure side. So things that, uh, for example, you're making scientific claims, you're, you're using cryptography, you're trying to build systems that scale to millions or billions of people. All of those things require independent third-party review. Mm -hmm. uh, and if anything, just for the journalists who are trying to communicate it, because how the hell do they sort it all out? I mean, it, you get all these papers, here you go, 60 pages of <laughs> mathematics. Good luck with that. Is it, is it right or wrong? It's like, well, I don't know. So what are you going to do? You're going to go ask somebody else and another scientist, and you know, does he like us or not? Is it like an appeal to authority? Well, if you go through a peer review process, at least then you say there's a benchmark there. You say, oh, okay, this paper appeared in crypto. Is that a good conference or not? You know, is that prestigious or not? Every 100 papers submitted, about 10 to 15 get in. So that's a high watermark. It's very difficult to get a paper into crypto. And that's amongst domain experts. Uh, so say, okay, at least that's something. It doesn't mean it's right, but it does mean at least really smart people who aren't associated with the product have taken a look at it and said that they're saying reasonable things. Mm -hmm. So we're in the ballpark now. Maybe we don't win the game, but at the very least, you know, we're, we're, we're not in the parking lot or something yep. like that, or in a different stadium waiting, uh, just sitting there <laughs> waiting for the game to start. Like, where is everybody? Okay, what's, what's next for the project? Uh... So we're, we're launching a lot of stuff. Um, right now, Shelly's all about decentralization and Gogan's all about smart contracts. And, you know, the, the, the topic of decentralization is kind of the inconvenient truth of the space. So just because you have an open consensus algorithm doesn't necessarily mean that the network topology is, is decentralized. Bitcoin has less than 10 mining pools that actually run uh, more than 51% of the system. Uh, so, you know, less than 10 of these guys are together and there's these giant 
warehouses in the middle of nowhere with subsidized power using patented hardware you can't buy. Is that really a decentralized open system for, you know, <laughs> not really. Right? So, so, you know, uh, Shelly is, is kind of the next milestone of Cardano. And, and this is all about having a conversation of what is decentralization at its, its core. You know, how many people need to be participating in the protocol? How do you change control quickly? Uh, how do you make it really low barrier to entry? How do you get a lot of geographic diversity so people in Africa and South America and other places can play? So you have a lot of network resilience. Uh, and, uh, and that's where we're at right now. So we're, we're doing all kinds of things. We have some hardware that we, uh, that we kind of fabricated uh, using a rock pie as kind of a proof of a concept of a super low cost stake pool that runs on less than 10 watts of power. We're really working hard to get more exchange listings and liquidity and uh, hardware devices like ledgers and you know, one of these Tangem cards here that are super cheap and they're kind of a trusted hardware wallet. Uh, so little things like that, we're gonna keep refining and iterating. And after we're well along that path, the next step is to work on smart contracts, and uh, we're almost ready to release that. And there, it's, it's kind of like what Satoshi should have done with Bitcoin. It's, it's a different model from what Vitalik did with Ethereum, but it's an equivalent model in terms of capability, uh, but yet it's significantly more secure and more deterministic. So you can kind of predict what things are going to happen, your gas cost use, and all of these things. Uh, so, uh, so that's where we're at this year. It's just smart contracts and decentralization. And, a lot of optimizations, and you know, towards the end of the year, we'll start talking about interoperability and uh, sustainability. And uh -huh. We hope entering into 2020, we'll have a treasury system. That means that people get to vote on what to pay for, uh, and anybody can ask for money. And then also interoperability will finally get its way in, and that means we can have uh, side chains, and we also can have really, really light ledgers. So to use the system with full node security, you'd only have kilobytes to megabytes of data on your phone or your laptop. Uh -huh but you still as if you had the entire blockchain, which is the only way we're really going to get scalability because these systems are victims of their own success. The blockchain yeah. will get the petabytes in size. <laughs> then either only Google or the NSA will have a copy yeah, of no, the no, chain. I was, right? that's, that's one of the most frustrating things. You try to you spin something up and you're waiting for, for four days for everything to right. download. How long does it take to synchronize an Ethereum node? Like, <laughs> like a week? Something like that, yeah. yeah. I, I forget. The last, I haven't done it in a while because it just hasn't been, uh, just hasn't been valuable. Right. Is, is this what you were dreaming of when you were riding your bike in Hawaii to the library, uh, what you're doing right now? No, no, no. Actually, you know, I didn't develop a love of money until I worked on the Ron Paul campaign back okay. in uh, 2007. I, I had no idea about anything about monetary policy mm -hmm. or gold or these things. And when I, uh, when I, I get so frustrated with the Bush administration that I said, you know, we need to do something different. And didn't really like the, uh, the Clinton or Obama camp. So I said, well, I'm disenfranchised now. I guess I'll just become cynical and, okay, and go good. goth yeah, yeah. or something. Then they said, well, there's this Ron Paul guy. And uh, I said, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. So then that, that kind of started a journey where I, uh, I, I read a lot of books on, uh, from Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard and Hayek, and I said, wow, you don't actually need a government to make money. This is, this is a pretty concept. You know, this is, but there was no Bitcoin at the time, mm -hmm. so, so I was like, all right, well, that, that's great. So I have all this like, forbidden knowledge, but it's useless. I can't do anything with it. No one's going to make me the chairman of the Federal Reserve <laughs> anytime soon. Then Bitcoin came around, and I said, wow, I... I can be part of this revolution where we actually can make our own money. This is so cool. Of course, no one cared about Bitcoin at the time, so mm -hmm. it was all fantasy, right? Then in 2013, like Bitcoin got big, and I said, well, I should kind of quit my job and go, go do this full time because uh, you know the train is going to leave without me if mm -hmm. I uh, if I don't get in. And, and so I entered, and you know now we're here, but it's it's just pretty bewildering. Like uh, this this convention center is actually where we announced Ethereum back mm -hmm. in January of 2014, and to come back here this many years later and just see where the industry's at and 
going from aspirational to almost a feeling of inevitability that we're going to have a major say. And to see all the major accomplishments, it's just, uh, it's truly humbling. I, I mean, I was in Mongolia, in the middle of damn nowhere, and I saw this camel herder coming by. And uh, we talked to him, and we found out the guy had Bitcoin. <laughs> like, when you're in a country of nomads, yep. in the middle of nowhere, in the Gobi Desert, and there's some guy riding a bunch of camels has Bitcoin. It's like, wow, we've, we've gone a long way from that diner yeah. where the other guy didn't show up, you know? Fascinating. All right, well, thank you for this. This is, uh, this is a deep conversation early in the morning, but uh, and you have your keynote next, so it's yep. going to be fun. Thank you so much, John. This was All right, a lot perfect. of fun. All right, thank Cheers. Technotopia is brought to you by Happy Fun Corp. Happy Fun Corp. is a design-driven technology company in Brooklyn, New York that specializes in building mobile and web applications for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Whether it's a new mobile or web application that will help people experience the internet in a fun new way, or software that will interface with a new piece of top-secret hardware, Happy Fun Corp. is always up to the challenge. Big or small, Happy Fun Corp. loves building software and loves working with great people. Come build with them. HappyFunCorp.com